0: Professional sports are grappling with decisions about the number of games and where the safest place to play is. But what about the players' physical abilities to return to sport after COVID-19 put their routines on pause? Dr. Nicole Keith, president of the American College of Sports Medicine, discusses the implications of a return to sport and her research focused on improving health quality. And the NBA says they want to be realistic about the possibility that the season may not fully happen. We're talking to epidemiologist Zachary Binney about what sports are up against and whether they can pull off the return that sports fans have been promised. From the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters at ASU, I'm Andrew Ramsami, and this is The Huddle. The obvious concern on many of our minds is about the return of any sport and the spread of COVID-19, which seems inevitable. And after spending many weeks watching many of our favorite athletes at home, forced to innovate workouts and supplement gym equipment alternatives, will they be able to return to the court or field in peak condition? Dr. Nicole Keith is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Indiana University and president of the American College of Sports Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Nicole Keith. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Nicole, we're we're seeing a lot of college and pro sports, uh, you know, really at all levels coming back set to return. And it, and it's got us wondering here at the huddle um, after being away for so long, you know, even if you've been, you've been exercising and you've been as active as you can be, uh, what are the implications of returning to playing sports? If you've been in this kind of COVID-19 phase?
1: So I think for, um, athletes and you know thinking about both high school athletes and collegiate athletes um, differently so for the high school athletes um potentially uh, their access to competition has been a little bit different um and by that i mean they've not had the opportunity to be together to interact with one another um to interact with their coaches um in any way and i'm speaking as a professional, but also as a parent of a high school athlete and a collegiate athlete. So based on my observation, as well as what I've been reading, um, that it's been really difficult for high school athletes to train within their sport. And so they've been training more generally where I've observed uh, collegiate athletes, they're training virtually. And so they're working with coaches on mental aspects of their game, um, as well as physical aspects of their game virtually. So returning in either instance is going to be a little bit different um, for a couple of reasons. And so um, for the collegiate athletes who are returning to campus, we've observed that they're being quarantined with one another for two weeks uh, prior to competition, um, where high school athletes are coming back at a physical distance and competing right away. Um, many of Uh, The teams have started coming back in July and doing physical distance type competitions where athletes are using their own equipment or using um, separate equipment from each other that the school provides, Um, but that it's uh, really different than anything that they've experienced before. Uh, The other issue is just about levels of fitness in general, because they haven't been doing sport-specific training, that getting back into that sport-specific shape is a little bit more challenging than what many of the young athletes have experienced previously, because many of them are competing year round um, in their sport or in one sport or in different sports. um, And they've never really been sedentary as sedentary as they are right now. Um, So there's this physical aspect and this mental aspect um, of what's happening right now. Your question was about what to expect and, We're learning as we go along and, you know, I say about COVID-19 and return to play that a lot of this is um, guessing about how best to prepare athletes for a competition and keep them safe simultaneously.
0: Now, I've been seeing a lot of my friends who have... um have bought exercise equipment or are trying to remain physically active and a lot of, of them getting injured. Should we see, or should we expect that even elite athletes or collegiate athletes, high school athletes that as they return, we will see, uh, an increased level of injury, or is this just going to be kind of the common, the common level of injury that we would normally see normally see in re- in a return to sport after a break. Yeah. For the general population of people,
1: Uh, who have been going to the gym prior to COVID-19 and now they're trying something that they used to love, like maybe they were previous athletes and they're going back um, to try and do things that they used to love by themselves. It's not uncommon for people who are trying new physical activities or new sports to become injured. Um, But for athletes, uh, I would have no reason to expect that there would be an increase in injury rate because they're pretty well-trained and they're under the supervision of coaches and athletic trainers who are going to protect them. So I, I would have no reason to believe uh, that the injury rate would increase just because um, they're going back to competition.
0: So a lot of, of, of us, including professional athletes and players, have been you know stuck in their homes. I mean, what role what is the connection between physical fitness and mental health and and boost and boosting immunity?
1: It's huge. And so the, for people who are regular exercisers, and, and I'm sure that you've noticed that uh, they're getting out and finding ways to exercise in other ways. So you see uh, bicycles getting sold out. And part of it is because there's this increase increased uptake in the purchase of bicycles. And the other part of it is because many of the bicycle parts come from overseas and we're not getting them. And so um, we're not getting new bicycles. Uh, but you see that people are in um, increased park land use. There's increased people walking on sidewalks and using trails. So people are being active and even people who have free time because they've been laid off or furloughed um, are taking up exercise in terms, in in, in order to maintain their physical and mental health. There's a huge relationship between um, being physically active and having positive mental health, as well as being outside and when we're um, receiving these stay home orders and um, being told that um, for the health of all Americans when we're outside, we need to maintain an appropriate physical distance. People are really working to be safe, um, but also to remain physically active. Um, and, and it's it's super
0: important. So we've seen in other countries where, you know, sports have returned, namely football and soccer, you know, they've been on the field now for a few weeks now uh, teams here in the U S are, are just getting back into it. Um, you know, with a a very compressed time frame, right? We're seeing everyone wanting to get a jump on on fall sports with the expectation that COVID nineteen and potentially the flu will combine together to potentially create a super effect. Um, will we see in this you know in this compressed time frame? Will it take longer for athletes to be able to get back to their peak level?
1: It's really hard to say and I don't know if you saw this morning that Ivy League schools canceled fall sports and um, when I saw that I um, was a little bit concerned that that might trickle down to trickle across to other collegiate sports or trickle down to high school sports. Um, I it's it's really difficult to say and then the reason I, I say that is because um, there's this understanding that there's this preseason conditioning that happens. And uh, should be going on right now, and in many cases is going on right now. And that by the time the athletes, the fall sport athletes, get to their season, they're in peak condition. Uh, they shouldn't be conditioning while they're in season. They should be competing while they're in season. So um, it's hard to say because the conditioning period, like you, like you said, was, it was reduced, in the, and so it's difficult to know. Um, whether or not uh, people are going to continue to condition, condition while they're in season, the good news is that everybody is on the sa- is in the same situation. So, if um, there are athletes who are under peak condition and they're competing, the assumption is that everybody on the field is going to be under peak condition, and and so therefore um, the playing field will be pretty level.
0: So, yeah, as you mentioned, a decision was made uh, late yesterday that Ivy Leagues are going to place all sports on hold until January. Uh, how much of, uh, of that decision do you think will have a ripple effect on the rest of, of collegiate sports?
1: Well, we're all watching to see what happens. And, um, you know, people compete within their um, conferences, but there's also um, – a conference, the competition that happens outside of conferences, too. And so when you take one conference away, um, it could have a ripple effect just depending upon what other conferences were planning to do. And, and we don't know. I, I don't know that anybody's been told um, what's happening with collegiate conferences and whether they're planning to play pre conference competition or not. If they weren't planning to play pre conference competition, then there won't be a ripple effect. They'll just play within their conference and conferences will decide what's going to happen. Um, From what I understand from the NCAA and what I understand from from conference uh, administrators, they're really relying upon colleges and university presidents to determine what they're going to do and what they decide is really going to affect what conferences are able to do or decide to do.
0: So, with elite athletes, you would expect that there there would be an emphasis on keeping them strong and keeping them in terms of of doing a routine of exercise. But what about the the rest of the general population? you know a couple of weeks ago, you were on CBS Sunday morning talking about remaining active and you know there you were cleaning your house. Um, how important is it for the general population to maintain strength and and a routine of exercise
1: well it's it's more important and um we we have these conversations about reimagining sports and allowing um, providing opportunities for kids for children and youth who are in underserved communities to participate in competition and um, revamping sports in such a way that that can happen where it had not been happening previously. I'd like to think about reimagining uh, physical activity and exercise as well, and so less than 30% of the population meets the uh, U.S. Physical Activity Guidelines uh, pre-COVID. I don't know what it is right now, but pre-COVID, that was what it was. Very few people in America uh, were getting, were meeting um, the requirement of 150 minutes a week of um, cardiovascular exercise um, and two days a week of resistance training. And I suspect that that number has improved. And um, I think that it's also really important for our people to understand that, I work out every day. Um, I'm I'm fortunate that I I work in a place that has a strength and conditioning lab that is closed, but all the equipment is there. And so I can go every day and and work out and take my son who's 17 and um, he can work out too and stay strong and stay cardiovascularly fit. And we're the only two people in there. Um, But not everybody has that. And so being... um, really active and the other thing is when I'm on campus, um, I'm the Associate Dean of Faculty Affairs and our um, departments are across seven buildings and so it's not unusual over a course of a day for me to just walk um, a mile and a half just visiting faculty in their office offices to talk to them about um, the issues at hand. I don't do that now. I do it all on Zoom and I'm sitting at a desk all day uh, looking into um, a camera on a laptop, like many people in America are doing who are, who are blessed enough to still have a job. Um, but that walking um, that I was getting as my activity of daily living is gone. And so I do clean. I have that extra time. I don't have my um, commute. I don't have to drive to work and drive home. Um, and so I do have extra time to do things like, like cleaning to get those extra steps in, or to go outside and uh, water my plants so um, that I'm outside when I would normally be walking from building to building, I can be outside doing something else and being in the sun. And so it's really important for people for their, again, physical health, but also their mental health to find ways to fit activities that wouldn't traditionally be framed as exercise, um, but that does cre- create create um, energy expenditure to move around, um, to get outside, and to do things that are
0: that are good for them. So, your research is focused on on health equity. Uh, what is health equity, and, and what does that mean?
1: Sure. So, um, health equity. There's um, something called the social determinants of health, and um, the the evidence shows that depending on your where you live, um, how much education you have, um, how much income you have, or that your family has, is going to um, impact your health outcomes. And so if you live in an urban area with very few resources, um, your health outcomes are going to be worse off than if you live in the opposite, um, an area that has several resources. Um, It's really important to take a look at both policies, um, systems and environments. And so for policies, it's what rules are in place, whether it be laws or uh, whether it um, be policies within a school district or within an academic institution or within a business, what rules are in place that are helping you or preventing you from being healthy? And then in terms of systems, it's what's systematically driven um, to help people be healthy or to prevent that from happening. And then in environments, um, it's what's in your environment? What's the built environment? How much green space do you have? How much parkland do you have? Are your sidewalks connected? Or do you have to, you know, endure um, traffic instead of um, having pe- pedestrian friendly areas? So what's your environment? And so when we look at health equity, it's how do we level again? i using the sport analogy. How do we level the playing field so that people who are in low, low resource areas? um have as much access to opportunities to be healthy as people who are in high-resourced areas.
0: So after the the death of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, we spoke to Dr. Rashawn Ray, who's researched the limitations of movement and exercise in the Black community. Um, and looking at where where Black men exercise, they rarely felt safe exercising in, in white neighborhoods and, and in sports. You know, teams usually have designated practices and places of you know, to be able to work out. Like you said, you, you have a place there at the university where you've, you've got a, a room full of equipment. Um, do designated places like having a gym where you can go, you know, affect the feeling of safety for communities of color? And, and have you seen an increase or, or decrease in activity among communities of color right now during this quarantine?
1: Well, we don't know because um, we don't have the evidence. And I, I just want to be clear because, um, you know, Ahmaud Arbery was not, he didn't just die, he was killed. And so his, his murder, um, unfortunately, in the United States, this happens pretty frequently um, that uh, black men are targeted um, when they're outside exercising. And it's like, you know, jogging while black or you can't wear a hoodie if it's cold outside because um, someone will assume that you're up to something nefarious if you're a black man. Um, but I'd also like to um, and, and, and it's unfortunate. And again, we don't have the evidence of what, what what has happened during COVID-19 because we're in the middle of it. So we don't know what's happening. Um, but it'll be really interesting in the future to see if, if the physical activity participation has increased or decreased. But I also want to put out there that this is something that women, um, regardless of color, have um, had to endure forever. Is it safe for us to go outside and exercise independently and in remote areas? And so um You know, it's a challenge and we have to be really careful about where we're going. And, you know, you ask about gyms and, you know, there's a sex discrimination that happens in gyms about um, how welcoming an environment it is for women to exercise or not, um, depending on the um, business and and what they've decided to do in order to make it a safe space for women and especially for um, um, people who are... um, in with living in the lgdp LGBT, lgbt lgbtq community and so if um you know you're in a in a in a business in a in a gym that um makes you choose you know you're going to go to the men's locker room and you're, you're going to go to the women's locker room and if you don't ad- identify with either sex where is there for you to go and so there are a lot of disparities that are um that are created by making people choose where they need to be. And then also that are created by simply um, your your sex. If you're a woman, it's it's much different. And especially if you're a transgender woman or a transgender man and going into um, the locker room with the sex that you identify and the danger that you put yourself in because people don't understand or are not open to the transgender community. And so there's a lot, I think, that business, there's a lot of work that business has to do in order to, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to make, be, create welcoming environments when you're inside. Um, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of work that communities have to do to make people feel safe while they're
0: outside. I saw that there's a connection between you and, and Richard Lapchick. Um, we just had him on, on the podcast um, and he wrote an op-ed last month for the Orlando Sentinel And in it, he says, quote, racism stains every fabric of society. People call it a broken system. But I wonder if the system wasn't designated or I'm sorry, wasn't designed throughout our history to produce exactly the situation we live in today regarding race. I think we must break this system that has resulted in what we live with every day. End quote. Does that resonate with you in your own professional career and and in the research that you've been doing?
1: Well, first I have to say I laugh because that came out of nowhere. Oh, sorry, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, yeah, Richard is my husband's best friend, and he's my son's godfather, oh. and a very, very dear friend. And uh, we we love him and his wife Anne and their daughter Emily um, just dearly. They're very close friends of ours, um, and yeah, and there's a reason for that because we're like-minded people, and like-minded people. Um, uh, gravitate towards one another, but we we're, we're very close friends. And uh, I agree with everything that you just said within his quote. Um, you know, America was built on the backs of slaves. And so the entire country um, was built in this system where, um, you know, Black people specifically were um, treated as property rather than people in the very beginning of our nation. And then when slavery was abolished, uh, very shortly after that, uh, the laws were changed so that every um, man, woman and child is free until they broke the law. And these prison systems were built um, by arresting black people and then infirming them so that they could build these prisons and develop this other opportunity for america to make money they didn't have the slave system anymore now they have the prison system and they enslaved black people in a different way so when richard says that um our our, it's not a broken system it was the way the system was built he's absolutely right and even when racial discrimination laws came into effect there were always these loopholes um, that didn't protect specifically black people but then when you know we started increasing our uh, Latino population, the same thing is happening. And when we look at what's happening on our borders, on the U.S. borders that border with Mexico and how Mexicans in particular, but also people who are migrating through Mexico to get to the United States are being treated, um, the rules, the laws are are established so that these people can't be free. Um, There's no intent, um, there hasn't been an intent historically to make sure that um, black and brown people in the United States um, have the same level of freedom as white people. And, it, you know, that's not a broken system. That's an established system. I, I would like to say also, though, the good news is uh, more than I've ever witnessed in my 51 years of life, that now um, white people in the United States are seeing this is not right. And in places where black people and Hispanic people have not historically lived, we're seeing Um, these protests that are just white people saying we can't do this in our country anymore. This is not what our country uh, should stand for and we won't stand for this. So because we can have these conversations and because people who aren't um, minorities are becoming really much more comfortable in mainstream conversations uh, with having these conversations and not feeling like they have to look away if um, they see racial discrimination or that they're not allowed to talk about it or to ask questions or to explain to their children, this is why this is happening. And this is why it's important. And the more mainstream these conversations become, I I liken it to smoking. And it's a really weird weird comparison of cigarette smoking and racism. Um, But cigarette smoking destroys a lot of things. And so does racism. And cigarette smoking is a public health issue and racism is a public health issue. And the thing is with cigarette smoking is laws were passed um, that said it was illegal to smoke in um, certain inside and within uh, 20 feet of buildings in, in most states. Um, laws were passed that racial discrimination is against the law. People understood the health outcomes, the negative health outcomes that are associated with um, cigarette smoking. People are starting to understand the negative health outcomes that are associated with racism. Uh, Many of us who study this have known this forever, but now it's becoming a mainstream understanding that people understand racism is bad for public health. And people would say, if you're smoking inside, that it's socially unacceptable. You can't do that in here. It's bad for you, but it's also bad for me. And once you leave, the residue of your smoking is going to remain and people need to become comfortable to, when they see racism, to say, you can't do that in here. Um, this is bad for you. This is bad for me. This is bad for our country. And once you leave your with your racist activities, the residue of your racism will remain. And once that happens, racism is going to be as socially unacceptable in every community in our nation as cigarette smoking is today.
0: Nicole, historically, we've seen Black women play an important role and important part in, in moving the conversation and, 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 in creating actual change as a, as a black woman yourself, you know, the president of, of the American college of sports medicine, what do you feel this moment is for you and what's the opportunity?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I don't know if you're aware that every other president of the American college of sports medicine before me was white. And, um, this, is, this was my second time running for president-elect, and first time I lost, and um, I was asked to run again, and it was hard. You know, us competitive people, we don't like to lose, <laughs> so it was hard to run again in the face of I might lose again, um, but I didn't. I won, and I, I will say that it, it's really encouraging because, first of all, um, our professional organizations are microcosm of our world. Um, American College of Sports Medicine, despite its name, American, is an international organization. And um, almost every country in the world has at least one member um, that is a member of ACSM. And it's really great to see uh, the international outpouring of encouragement from people who um, have never seen anybody who looks like me be um, the, um, the leader of their organization And so in terms of history, I hope that there are many, many more people of color who are leaders of the American College of Sports Medicine. We're planning for it. So I know it's not enough to hope. Um, We are actually positioning people um, through our leadership and diversity training program to become leaders in the college, many of whom are really positioned to be future presidents of our organization. But it's also a message to other professional organizations um, and to people who pay attention to the American College of Sports Medicine, whether it be students or clinicians or fitness professionals, that diversity is important. It's important to have diversity and communication and leadership and in and, 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 and general thought. And so in terms of where we are in history, it, it's a it's a change. It's it's something that has never happened before. And it, it's really weird in 2020 to say that I'm the first minority anything because you would think minorities have had opportunities everywhere, but that's just simply not the case. And the more we can penetrate mainstream society, the better off we'll be and the better off society
0: will be. Dr. Keith, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That was Dr. Nicole Keith. To see how Dr. Keith is remaining active in her own home We put a link in our show notes. Throngs of fans are eagerly awaiting for the return of sport. This week, social media was abuzz, with photos of players from both the NBA and the WNBA hopping on private jets and heading to Florida. While the notion of a bubble sounds safe, can it deliver upon its theory? Joining me is Zachary Binney, epidemiologist at Oxford College of Emory University, who focuses on sports. How's it going, Zach? Oh, on the
2: sliding scale that we're all grading on, Andrew, it's going great. How about you?
0: <laughs> Pretty good, you know. You, you. We were just talking before we started recording. You're, you're in a hot spot there in Atlanta, and uh, we are the hot spot here in Arizona. So, if you want a licensing deal, we can trade spots.
2: Yeah, we are going hot spot to hot spot today. I'm sorry to say.
0: All right. Well, let's just get into it. I mean, with this is the question on everyone's mind right now. Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, has put it out there that he's prepared to shut down the season. Uh, and we're hearing from others that COVID-19 is just, uh, is just quote, inevitable. What are we really walking into here? Are, are we prepared for this bubble, the safety bubble? Is this an experiment? Um, what do you think? What are you thinking?
2: Yeah. So back in March and April, when I started thinking about how sports could potentially come back from this, I definitely foresaw us doing a much better job responding to COVID-19 than we have. I was really hoping that we would not just flatten the curve, but like other countries, we would crush it. And instead, we got stuck on kind of a plateau. And then a little after Memorial Day, we got a little tired of it. And uh, and we've seen cases, unfortunately, spiking since then. So we are almost unique, with the possible exception of Brazil, in trying to bring sports back in an environment with so much virus. Every other country that's tried that, Germany, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, even Spain and Italy have managed to bring their soccer leagues back, and they were at, at some of the worst countries right at the start. That They got hit very, very hard but they have managed to drive their number of new cases a heck of a lot lower than we have. And so they've been able to bring their top soccer leagues back. And here we are still struggling with basically golf and NASCAR and uh, just starting up some soccer bubbles, both uh, women's soccer in the NWSL and uh, men's soccer uh, in the MLS bubble. How successful do I think they're going to be? I don't know. I think it varies a lot from league to league and plan to plan. I have more faith in some than I do in others, and, and we can get into that. But I will say that generally, um, if we are able to bring sports back in this environment, it's going to be more difficult, more expensive, and more dangerous than any other country uh, has has needed. And, um, and it's not going to be as easy as Germany. And a plan that looks like a German plan uh, probably isn't going to work for us. And that's something else we can get into later if you want.
0: So what is the, what is your role? What does an epidemiologist do and, and how does, you know, how do you get to say these things with a level of, I would say, confidence and certainty as to how things might work or might not work?
2: Ooh, I wouldn't say confidence and certainty. That's a, uh, that's a strong word uh, in in our field. You know, we're, if I can digress on my thinking about science for a second, I I really like the attitude that we're just trying to get a little less wrong every day. We are reasoning under the best information that we have at the time, especially with a new virus like this, we are constantly learning, constantly updating our thoughts and expectations, and I know that can be really frustrating for the public because it seems like we're changing our mind, and the truth is we are, but that's because we're learning. And that's just a necessary part of science that i think a lot of people don't grasp and isn't necessarily common in public and cultural depictions of science where it's more like the lone genius having a eureka moment right and saving the world when that's really not what science is like in the vast majority of cases so you know but but what is an epidemiologist we we basically study patterns of health and disease in populations I like to say that we're a quantitative discipline that teaches you, like many other quantitative disciplines, to think about and analyze the world in a numbers-oriented way. I think a lot of the methods that we use don't have to be restricted to health. It just happens to be why most of us got into the field and what most of us do. But, you know, uh, health is not just virus hunters, which is probably what comes to mind for most epidemiologists. Epidemiologists work on chronic diseases like heart disease and cancer we study patterns of those in populations we study sports injuries for example that's what i do uh where we try to identify you know what's what's causing injuries can we predict them uh who's going to get hurt and why are they going to get hurt how can we stop them from getting hurt um and so you know that's that's mostly what i do i focus my attention on sports and player injuries and athlete health but um you know we all have because of the fields um uh, uh, origins, we all have some grounding in infectious diseases. And I wouldn't put myself out there as an infectious disease expert. And in fact, I'm I'm very careful to try not to do that. But I'm at the intersection of epidemiology in the sports world. And so I, I view it as my duty to try to communicate good public health and epi information to the sports world. And, and that's what I've been trying to do the last few months.
0: So in this moment right now, as, as various sports and leagues try to return, uh, what would your message to them be?
2: My message to them would be, be flexible. It's going to be difficult and don't expect that just because you made a great plan, it's not all going to go pear-shaped anyway. I think that the plans that the NBA and MLS and NHL came up with are all relatively strong. I think that MLB's plan is a lot weaker. And the reason that I like the NBA, MLS and NHL plans is because to some degree or another, they all involve... Centralization or sequestering. So, by that I mean putting everybody in one or a few different cities in as closed an environment as you can make that really limits contacts between people inside the league and those outside the league so that it's harder for the virus to get in. And then you couple that with very frequent testing so that when a case does get in, one case stays one case instead of turning into two or four or five or 10. So all of those leagues have plans that mostly uh, grasp those two major major components. Major League Baseball is instead trying to play in all their, mar- all their home markets and have players and staff live at home with their families, exposed to their communities. And they're asking people not to do high-risk things like go to bars, but you're just relying on the honor system. And I think that that's probably a pretty risky approach to take. Uh, given the amount of virus that we have in, in some areas. And if you're on the Arizona Diamondbacks or the Texas Rangers, or the Houston Astros or the Miami Marlins or the Tampa Bay Rays, I think that you're going to see outbreaks on these teams as they come back for spring training, just because of the sheer amount of virus uh, that's there around them. And I think that those teams stand a real chance of of being disrupted and having to shut down for a couple of weeks because of an accumulation of cases.
0: So you say that, you know, the, this bubble in Florida, uh, with the NBA, um, what do you think that they would have to do to ensure that the bubble remains safe?
2: Well, so first of all, I'll say the, uh, NWSL, the national women's soccer league was the first one to establish a bubble. They did it in Utah. They have been mostly successful. I think they're a good proof of concept. Now, they're smaller. There are only eight teams that are there, and they got a little lucky because their major outbreak on a team happened with the Orlando Pride, but it happened before they traveled to the bubble. So they were able to establish a bubble. I think they got a little bit lucky. I think they benefited from not having a ton of people. And so far, knock on wood, they have not had uh, any cases as far as I know inside the bubble, or certainly not many. Major League Soccer has already established their bubble. They had issues from Dallas and Nashville, who both brought big outbreaks into the bubble from cases that look like they happened in Dallas and Nashville. The problem was they happened just before those teams traveled. And so they got a little unlucky. They all tested negative before they traveled. A couple on each team tested positive when they arrived, but then players were let out of quarantine and Only a few days later did the extent of the outbreaks on those teams become apparent. And by that time, you already had disease in the bubble. We are still holding our breath over the next five to seven days, I would say, to see if cases appear in the bubble outside of Dallas and Nashville uh, in any appreciable numbers that would suggest team-to-team spread in the bubble. If that happens, I think MLS needs to shut it down. The NBA will face the same difficulties getting all of their teams in virus free. That's the most delicate part of this whole process. If they're able to do that, I think the way that they've constructed their bubble has a decent chance of, of keeping cases from the community out. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is we haven't seen an outbreak in, MLS, in, in the MLS bubble that appears to have been driven by the amount of virus around them in Florida and in Orlando. So that's encouraging.
0: So when you say shut down, I mean, what would it take to actually shut down a league or a team? Like, what what's the red line?
2: I think it's really hard to draw a single red line for a go-no-go decision. And I say that because it's not just about a number of cases. It's about the um, temporal distribution of those cases, meaning how quickly they occurred together. It's about the distribution of those cases across teams. Do you have clusters or not? I'll talk more about that in a moment. It has to do with uh, the testing availability and test positive percentage in your surrounding community, the number of cases in your surrounding community, and hospitalizations in your surrounding community, and, and hospital and ICU bed capacity. These are all parts of a broader picture that I can understand the desire to not draw a red line. You want to have somebody who can look at that whole situation and kind of make an overall judgment on whether or not it is safe for you to continue. The problem that I think that we're running into is that teams have decided that they're not going to establish a red line, which okay, but then their solution to that is we're going to let our commissioners say they know it when they see it. And I think that the commissioners are going to be very tempted because of the amount of money involved to push things further than perhaps they should be. This is not an indictment of the commissioners. This is a statement about human nature, right? You really want some independent body telling you in a situation like this when you should and shouldn't shut down. Ideally, that would be a local or state health department. I respect the heck out of my colleagues working at all of those departments. I I love them to a man and a woman, but I have uneven faith in their ability to act in that capacity. Simply because of the state governments under which they're operating. So uh, what I would really love to see is some sort of independent board, almost like for your academic listeners, a data safety and monitoring board that is able to track everything. They are independent experts. They haven't consulted with you in the past. They're not expected to in the future. You pay them in advance and they have unilateral power to tell the commissioner, you have to shut it down. I don't know how you structure that. I don't know if it's feasible, but if you're asking for my ideal solution, I think it would look something like that.
0: So you're a sports fan. Um, you have a love for this game. We, you know, We're seeing colleges opting out, canceling fall sports. Would you go back to sports right now if you were a pro athlete?
2: Well, that varies a whole lot. It varies on pro versus college versus high school and youth. It varies on the sport and the plan. If I were an NBA player, I'd give the bubble a shot, just purely from a, a like safety perspective. NHL player, same thing. MLS player, same thing. I wouldn't fault you, by the way, for not wanting to do it. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I don't think it's crazy to give it a shot. MLB, I'm a little more wishy-washy on. But again, I, I wouldn't blame you either way if you're an athlete. College, and, 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 you know, the, those, those are adults who are getting paid. When you get to college, these are students. These are amateurs. They don't have a union advocating for them. They don't have money. They're not paid. So I think the universities and the adults who are in charge have a whole lot of responsibility to protect the health of these students. And I think we've seen example after example where they haven't. Some have. For example, the University of Michigan seems to have done a decent job creating a reasonably safe environment through a number of different means, but, but primarily the fact that they've been uh, not just testing everyone when they arrive, but doing follow-up testing as well, which is really important for keeping the virus under control. But you've seen you know, Clemson, UNC, Texas, Houston, Kansas State- You've seen all of these schools have to shut down their practices because they had an outbreak, so they weren't creating a safe environment. Or their students just, you know, they got together and they went out to a bar because the option was there, but they still only did that because they came back to campus. So if I were a student athlete, you know, if my scholarship depended on going back in any way. I think I would feel forced to even if I didn't want to. So so that's that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night when advising and thinking about student athletes and college athletics. I just think I just think it's a lot more ethically fraught than than pro sports for any number of reasons.
0: And what if you're a parent of a high school student, you know, we we've now heard from our from our president that he wants schools to reopen in the fall, which means if that's the case that many students right now would be returning Ah, uh, back to school for sports to begin practice? Should they be going back to practice?
2: <sighs> that That is a really tough one because I feel like the pros, if if you're trying to rank, Pro college and high school and youth athletics. I think pro is the easiest to come back because of their resources. College is the hardest because they don't have as many resources as the pros and they have the whole campus environment to deal with, where it's going to be, I suspect, very hard to keep COVID 19 contained. High school and youth is kind of a in between. And I think it's really questionable to be engaging in high risk optional activities right now. But I don't want to tell students to just stay at home, right? That's not reasonable. That's that's not something that's going to get us through to a vaccine. So I I think we need to have a discussion, a good rational discussion about low, medium and high risk ways to bring sports back. And let me give some practical advice to any parents who happen to be listening. My advice would be, if you're looking for your students to get back into sports Outdoors is better than indoors. Fewer people is better than more people. Less contact is better than more contact. That's it. If you look at any sport, you can basically determine its danger based on those three things. Is it outside or inside? How many people? How much contact? I would also advise very strongly against travel leagues and large tournaments. That goes right with the number of people. Uh, thing you don't want to be gathering a lot of people in an area. If you're going to be playing matches, you really want it to be one team playing one other team. You want them to come from local areas. If you're in a league, keep playing the same team over and over as much as you can. Like if you're trying to play high school football, <clears throat> I would love to see the same four teams playing each other over and over and a round robin. And the reason for that is because you're trying to shrink the network through which the virus can move. So if you're playing local teams against each other over and over again, if there's an outbreak, that virus can only move through those four teams. Whereas if you have 12 teams all playing each other once, that virus can move anywhere through those 12. So you wanna be looking to shrink the networks, keep it local, keep it few people, keep it non-contact as much as you can, maybe consider something like flag football rather than tackle football and uh, and keep it outside.
0: Zach, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Zachary Binney, epidemiologist at Oxford College of Emory University. To follow Zach on Twitter, we have put a link in our show notes. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Huddle. The Huddle is a production of the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters at ASU. The producer for this episode was Kendall Jones. Our manager of communications and marketing is Crisal Valencia. To stay up to date on our latest events, podcasts, and stories, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at globalsportmatters.com. I'm Andrew Ramsiamy, and until next time, keep wearing your masks in public.